Jesus and the disciples are along the way, and they encounter a man born blind. The disciples really don't see the man, though, as they turn him into an abstract object lesson to be discussed. They turn it into a theological seminar on the, the, the relationship between sin and suffering. It's an unusual thing to do, although maybe we're more familiar with it than we want to realize. Maybe it's always easier to talk about something than it is to treat another person like a human being. Here he is, a part of their humanity, a fellow traveler along the way in a sense, and yet they don't see him. They instead want to be in this discussion about the nature of sin and, and suffering. Anna Carter Florence is a very good biblical scholar. Maybe she can help us here. She has a friend also born blind, who has instructed Professor Florence on what it means to have a friend like her. She says to her, I don't need nor want your pity. I want your friendship. Yes, as a, as a person born blind, it's been a struggle to find her way through the, the sighted world. There's different ways to cope and, and so on. But what she wants more than anything else is not a sense of pity, but a sense of friendship a relationship. She wants to be seen for her humanity, for who she is as a human being. Jesus makes it clear with his disciples that the, the blindness of the man was not caused by the sin of his parents. There's no relationship between the two of them at all. It, it makes me wonder why the disciples don't seem to ever read their Bibles. If they'd read their Bible, the, the one that we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, they would have encountered the story of Job. Job, you know, the story is almost 40 chapters of Job arguing that all the suffering he's experiencing in life is not as a result of his own sin. You recall, his family was wiped out. His, his business is, is destroyed. All his livestock are gone. He's covered head to toe in this horrific disease. His friends come to him, his friends, and they say, confess your sin. That's why you're struggling with all this. For almost 40 chapters, he says, no, no, and no. Jesus wants us to understand the answer is no. The answer is always no. Rabbi Kushner is a modern-day rabbi who helps us on, on this too. Let's put his quote up on the screen. Pain is the price we pay for being alive. Dead cells, our hair, our fingernails can't feel pain. They cannot feel anything. When we understand that, our question will change from why do we have to feel pain to what do we do with our pain so that it becomes meaningful and not just pointless, empty suffering? Rabbi Kushner sounds like Jesus in many ways. He wants us to understand what can we do in this moment? How do we transform this, this pain so that it becomes meaningful in our lives? Thank you, guys. You can, you can take that down. You see, the disciples aren't the only ones who, who treat this man as, as an object, as an abstract idea to be discussed and, 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 and talked about. Later in the story that we didn't hear, in this story that wasn't read this morning, some religious leaders, they're called Pharisees in the New Testament. They're religious leaders who are in charge of faith communities who wear long robes and stoles. So trust me, we're not picking on somebody in another faith. We're admitting that sometimes we are them. Well, these religious leaders, they, they, they come along and see this man who's been healed now, who's been, who's been made well, who can see. And, and they start to, to critique him and challenge him. Who did this to you? Why did he do this? Where's he from? Do you think he's a prophet? Is he, is he, what's he trying to get at here? Does he realize that he's broken the Sabbath? 
by, by committing a healing, by doing a healing, the man, he holds his own with these well-educated ones. He, he answers them very well, very clearly. He finally answers and, and ends the argument by saying, look, once I was blind, now I see. That's all I know. It's a brilliant way to stop them from attacking him. But what they're trying to do is use him, again, as an abstract object, as a weapon against Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble. They want to get him in, in trouble. And in fact, he's even been threatened in the chapter just before this one for his very life. So I wonder. And John kind of means to get under our skin a little bit this morning with this story. I, I wonder. He wants us to wonder, who do we identify with? Do we identify with, with the disciples? When we encounter something that's difficult, let's turn it into a philosophical discussion and, and not really give the humanity that's needed to it? Or we like the, the religious leaders who can feel their power and their control slipping from their fingers. They're desperately trying to hold on to that power. They desperately want to keep it. So who do we relate to? Maybe, maybe there's something about that desire for power that, that we can understand. The church used to be at the, at the heart of the civic square. It used to be that we had power in, in, in the nation, in the world. And it seems as though that's fading from us as well. So sometimes the church tries to grab hold and, and take power. Are, are you familiar with blue laws? Do you, do you know about blue laws? Just raise your hands if you know about blue laws. Lots of you do. When Julie and I moved from California to East Tennessee, to Johnson City, Tennessee, way up in the Upper East portion of, of the state, we knew nothing about blue laws. We'd been there about a month. School, I'd been in school for about two weeks. We were worshiping. I didn't have a church job yet, so we were worshiping at this little church, this little country church down this little country road, not too far from the little house that we, we were renting. Sweet, kind folks. And like I said, it's a Sunday. It's our fourth Sunday in, in the state of Tennessee. And Julie says to me after church, you know, we don't have anything at home for lunch. Let's run by the Kroger and get some pasta, some red sauce, some lettuce and tomatoes. We'll make up some spaghetti and a salad. Does that sound good? Sounds great. So we, go, we stop at the Kroger, going through all, all dressed up in a suit for, for Sunday worship, go through this, the store and pick up all the items. We get the pasta and the red sauce and the salad stuff. And, and we, go, we go by the wine section. And I said, hey, how about a glass of wine with lunch? That would be nice. We'd just enjoy our afternoon. Yes. So I reach in and I grabbed a box of red wine. Don't you judge me. <laughs> we were young and poor, and that's all we could afford. <coughs> we got to the cashier. We put everything up on the, ca on, on the conveyor belt. And before he even started it, the cashier looked at me and said, you can't buy wine. So I reached into my pocket and pulled out my, my, my driver's license. And he said, it's not about how old you are. You, you can't buy wine on Sundays. I said, no, seriously. I, I'm in seminary, I've studied this. Jesus wants us to buy wine today. It's, <laughs> it's really okay, it's not a problem. He said, no, I, I don't know what you're studying, but the law says I can't sell wine on Sunday. Now, if you want wine, you can come back after five and then buy some. And then I said, I'm confused. You, can buy, you can't buy wine on Sunday unless it's after five o'clock. Is, is that the law? That's the law. And the guy was getting very frustrated with me. He finally said, <clears throat> where are you from? I said, California. He muttered, figures. <laughs> See, that law was about the church trying to have power and control, if only from midnight on Sunday morning to 5 o'clock in the evening. 
Maybe there was a good reason for doing it at one time. I don't know, but it really wasn't about whatever that was, and it evolved into this. These religious leaders, the same ones who are feeling this power slip from their hands, they're misunderstanding the Sabbath. It was created for a day of rest, a day to, to not do any work, to find rest for your body and your heart and your mind and your soul. And now they've made it very rigid and strict, and Jesus wants them to see that this is meaningless. This man was blind, now he sees it's all to the glory of God. It's a beautiful thing. So, I, so do you identify with the disciples or the religious leaders? Or maybe another conversation happens in the story later between the parents of the man born blind and the religious leaders. <clears throat> they interrogate them. The religious leaders do. They interrogate the parents. What's going on with your son? What's really happening here? Who is this man who, who, who healed him? We want to know. They feel stuck. This is their religious community. These are their friends. These are the people they see on the Sabbath at the synagogue. And now here they're being challenged, and they essentially do what feels like a cowardly act. <clears throat> they throw their hands up and say, he's old enough. He's an adult. Go talk to him. They don't want to get into a confrontation. They don't want to lose their friendships. Ah, we can kind of cut them some slack, can't we? I mean, these are their friends. They want to be in relationship with them. They want to know them. Let's not have a fight. Let's not have a fight on the Sabbath. At what we've just been to worship in the synagogue. Can we just, everyone just get along? They're just going to go along to, to get along. And again, I, can I kind of understand that? 20 years ago in the month of this, this year, 20 years ago from right now, I began as a senior minister at Country Club Christian Church in, in Kansas City. Within a couple of months, a, a former uh, board leader, board chair, took me to lunch. And it was a nice, pleasant conversation and talk about the church and the history and that sort of thing. And then he said, I, I want to tell you something. I want to be serious. While you're here, do not bring up the gay issue. That's, those are his words. Do not bring up the gay issue. We've had too many fights recently. We've been through too many other struggles and things. We don't need to have another big fight about that. Just let it be. So I, I quizzed him on his feelings and his understandings and tried to listen to him carefully as, as his new pastor. But then he said, frankly, those people, I'm quoting him word for word, frankly, those people need to be quiet. I said, you may not want to hear me say this, but we're going to deal with this issue here. We're going to welcome and accept everyone in the name of God's love grace and mercy. There will be no one, no one turned away. I could cut him some slack because he didn't want to have a fight. He just wanted to be together with his friends at, at church. He, hear a pleasant message, some beautiful music, have a little coffee and a donut afterwards, and then go on home for the day. Jesus calls us in this story that's been put before us, to see everyone we see, to see a reflection on every face that we encounter, a reflection of the face of God, regardless of who that person is, what they believe, or how they identify, or anything, or anything else. You see, this, this, this Gospel of John especially, and this story on, on its own, has multiple, multiple levels of meaning, multi-layers multi of understandings. Another thing that we find in the Gospel of John is that stories like this are presented as signs, as a sign of who Jesus is, as a sign of who God is. They're, they're connected to miracles, but John doesn't like the word miracle. He likes to talk about them as signs. 
And, and there's, there's, revel there's revelation happening of who Jesus is or who God is. Do you know what the first sign is according to John's gospel that Jesus presents? Do you, does anyone know? It's in John chapter 2. It's the changing of water into wine for the wedding at Cana. The couple has run out of wine. The party is still going on. It could be an embarrassing moment. Jesus gets a nudge from his mother Mary. You can take care of this. Do something. He changes the water to wine so they won't be embarrassed. It's a beautiful story. And oh, by the way, you know, I've studied things in seminary, and I'm pretty sure this happened on a Sunday before five. <laughs> it's a story of grace. It's a story of mercy. They don't want to be embarrassed. Jesus, his mother, says, do something. Help them. With no fanfare, no angels announcing something up in the sky, nothing. It's just a simple act. Go and draw from the water over there in those jugs, and you'll see that you have more wine for the party. It reveals the grace and mercy of Jesus, which reveals to us the grace and mercy of God. This story as well is another illustration of grace and mercy. The man does nothing. The man does nothing to be healed. It's a gift graciously given. But the gift itself can be somewhat messy. Did you hear the story what Jesus does? He spits into some dirt, turns it into a spitty, muddy paste, and then wipes it on the man's face. Conversion is messy. Change is messy. Grace is messy. We're going to sing a song in a few moments that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." And it's always in that order, fear, then relief. Grace, mercy, and change are, are messy. They're mu it's muddy. By the way, I asked at the 9 o'clock service, is, do parents still do this? Do they still lick their fingers and, and wipe the kid's face off? They still, there, here's a yes here. Tim, Tim Van Sant, yes, Tim Van Sant does the same thing with his, with his little ones in his house. Cleaning up and changing is messy. But it can be such a beautiful thing if we can make it through to the other side. William Bridges made a career out of helping organizations, corporations, churches go through change and transition. I met him in 1992 in the church I was serving in San Diego. We brought him down to do three days of workshops on, on handling change and transition and what, what to expect. He says in his book, Transitions, that when change happens, there's always something that ends. There's always an ending when the transition begins. And that ending creates anger, fear, frustration, grief loss, and more. He says, if you're going to change and begin doing something new, it requires you to stop doing what you were doing before. I said to him when he presented these ideas in his first workshop that the language you're using here is what we in the church call conversion. It's about converting. It's about changing your, your way, about going a new way, about living in the way of Jesus, about leaving old things behind and taking on new ways of living and loving and being in the world. And he smiled and said, I have great respect for the church. I know that the church has done wonderful, good things, but just so we're clear, I'm, I'm an agnostic. And yet still he understood, deep in his soul, that any time we're going to create change, necessary change, transitional change, something 
must end. But like I said, we may not have spitty, muddy paste on our face, but it can cause some disruption. I remember about 12 or 13 years ago when I was church, serving that church in, in Kansas City, we had a, a, a somewhat controversial moment on the nominating committee. It wasn't about bylaws. It wasn't about the Constitution. Nothing like that. See, the, the, the committee was made up of young and old and in between, uh, male and female, newer members and longtime members, you know, to, to represent the congregation in similar to the way we, we try to do, do it here. And then it came time to call all the nominees who had been selected for the diaconate and for the governing board. In that church, different from this one, the pastors make the calls here. In that church, the committee members themselves called the diaconate, called the, called the, board, the board nominees. Well, this one young woman, like 25 or 26 years old, on the nominating committee, did something that had never been done before. She sent texts instead of making calls. We had an emergency meeting of the nominating committee. <laughs> what the heck is going on here? We don't send texts. That's rude and that's offensive. And people have called me and told me how upset they were that they got a text about this. This is more important than a text. And it went on like that for about 45 minutes. And finally, the young woman who was so gracious and so, so that, what's the phrase? That non-anxious presence. She finally said, if they would refer a phone call, I'm happy to make phone calls. But do you see how something that today is commonplace and people do it all the time? Or they call in the middle of church too, right? Right in the middle of church. <laughs> it's commonplace. It happens all the time. It's every day. It's no big deal. But even, the even a little change like that can just feel like, oh, we're losing something. There's grief. There's sadness. And there's loss. What Jesus wants, what God wants, is for us to put grace at the center of everything we encounter in this church and in our lives. What God wants is for that grace, as messy as it can be, is for us to see that indeed this grace is amazing and it invites us, even today, to follow in the way of God's love, mercy, and joy.